This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is an abridged version of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and he put the man he had formed. There he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. To Adam God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's second reading is taken from Matthew Chapter 6, reading from verse 5. Jesus said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do be seated and do take out this uh, sermon outline, which will help you as I kick off this series about which June just gave a great over, overview of uh, on uh, biblical meals. But I want to start by talking about a TV show that we've been recently watching as a family called Alone in Australia. Anyone been watching Alone in Australia? A couple of people out the back. It's great. It's an SBS show. It's the Australian edition of a popular American series which is just called Alone. Um, the premise of the show is that 10 people are taken to various parts of the um, uh, wilderness of southwestern Tasmania and stranded alone without supplies of food or shelter and with only some very basic equipment. And it's a case of who survives the longest. Um, they get to tap out. It's not to, you know, until everyone dies and the last one still alive wins. But anyway, uh, they can tap out and it's an endurance test of survival in the wilderness. Now, you might imagine the verdant forests of Tasmania is a relatively benign place. It's not that cold. It's not that hot. There are no bears or wolves to worry about, for example. The Tasmanian tiger, well, there might be one of those left. But finding food in the wilderness, it turns out, is really, really difficult. And without food, even for just a couple of days, the contestants are subject to mood swings and lightheadedness. And when starvation starts to kick in, energy levels drop and despair and delirium follow. It's a brutal game. And of course, uh, we're great armchair critics. We sit there in the comfort of our own armchair and tell them how exactly how it should be done. But it reveals a couple of basic things, I think, about human beings that we are prone in our industrialised civilization to forget. And the first of these is just how dependent we are on the earth to give us food for our most basic existence, just to survive. We are bodies made of the same stuff that we eat to live. We actually have this deep connection to the earth on which we live in that very grounded sense, in that very literal sense. We may think, we may like to think we are more like the angels or spirit creatures, but we are organic matter, you and I. We need to put together other pieces of organic matter and put them into our bodies or we will die. We are no different in this than the other life forms that share the earth. 
Well, that's the first thing. We're really dependent. The second thing that got me thinking here was that surviving alone is really very difficult because human beings are not made to be alone. Surviving as a human being is a team sport. It's a team activity, even at the basic level of cultivating and gathering food. We live in communities, and not just of greater numbers than one, but also of many generations, as we pass down the knowledge and skills that we learn generation by generation to live well in the, in the creation, in the world which God has given us. And because of this, eating is a central human activity, any anthropologist will tell you. It's not an accident that the central preoccupations of human cultures everywhere are the hunting, gathering, cultivation, preparation and eating of food. If it's one thing we human beings do and do together, it's eat, share food. Well, it's no accident, it's not surprising that the same is true of the opening chapters of the Bible. We see that food is a very prominent feature of these opening chapters in the story, the famous story of the Garden of Eden. And eating is central to this story. Food in these chapters is used as a symbol for our relationships with God, with each other, and with the world that God made us. Now, just a bit of a sidebar before we begin today, it's worth saying that Genesis is one of the most important and one of the most debated texts in the history of all the world's literature. These are two of the most important pieces of writing in human history. And so there's many, many questions that I'm sure you might have at this, at this point um, about whether we're supposed to take it literally or historically in some way or what degree is uh, there symbolism here. And these are great questions, but they're not in our viewfinder today. The important thing for us to ask is, what is this story teaching us about who we are in our relationships with one another, in our relationship with God, in our purpose given to us by God, in our relationship to the creation? And sometimes we have to admit that we have quite cartoonish images of the Garden of Eden. Now, we imagine it, I think, somewhat like a tropical resort. And we imagine it as something like somewhere in Bali, right? kind of nice and warm, with trees hanging heavy with luscious fruit, and Adam and Eve just sitting in deck chairs and kind of holding out their hands, and mangoes fall into their, you know, something like that. Very easy place to live, and Adam and Eve wandering about on some kind of permanent, unclothed holiday. But that's not the picture at all here. If you'll notice, if you read closely, what Genesis says is that God has made the place, the earth, a place where food grows, but that human beings are called to work the ground to cultivate their food. You can see this at the beginning of the passage in chapter 2, verses 5 and 7. At first, the earth is depicted as empty, without plants. Now, there are streams, mysterious streams that come up and water the ground, but there is no vegetation. And why is there no vegetation as yet, according to Genesis? Because of two reasons. The Lord God has not sent rain. And secondly, there is no one to work the ground. The earth is not living up to its potential. It is not yet fertile because God has not sent rain and because there is no one to work the ground. In other words, there are these two elements that are needed to bring about food from the ground. The blessing of God in providing water and soil and seeds, but also the gardener, the gardener who will cultivate this ground. This ground needs someone to bring it to fruition. And so what does the Lord God do? 
He makes a gardener. What does he make the gardener out of? He makes the gardener out of the very ground that he is going to till. In fact, he makes this, this being, and the name of this being is Adam, or basically earthy, muddy, soily, dirty, dusty. That's Adam. That's, that's the meaning of that name. Made from the very dust that he's going to work and get his food from. And he's given a specific garden to work, planted by the Lord God in the east. And there were trees in that garden that are delectable and edible. And notice that the man is not given a monotonous and tasteless diet. He's not given grass, only grass to eat like the cattle. Imagine that. But he's given a diet that appeals not only to his taste buds, not only sustains and nourishes him, but is good on the eyes, easy on the eyes, is delightful, aesthetically pleasing. The trees are there, but the man is to take care of the garden and to work it. God has given his world, in other words, enormous potential, but he's invited human beings to see, to look into that world and to use their creativity and their freedom to bring it to realisation. He has given them the task of gardening that world, of bringing that world, cultivating it, bringing it to its potential. Now, Sometimes in contemporary chatter, we like to oppose the human and the natural. We see the human and the natural as enemies. We like to romanticise the natural and demonise the human, especially the agricultural and industrial features of modern society. Now, we human beings do have a problematic relationship with the world in many ways, but the story of Genesis is that we are actually part of the natural world and that we've been given a special role within that natural world to bring it to its potential, seeing its beauty, its fertility, its latent possibility and its potential for abundance. And I think a great example of this is one of my favourite fruits. It's this. The avocado, it's not just this one is my favourite, but uh, the avocado, one of my favourite fruits. Now the wild avocado, I think, I think the avocado is a kind of taste miracle, isn't it? it tastes, it's a fruit that's like butter. I mean, what a thing. But it, it, the wild avocado is very interesting because it produces, it's almost spherical in shape and it's mostly seed. There's hardly any fruit to it at all, hardly any pulp. But about 5,000 years ago, Mesoamerican tribes saw potential in that fruit. And through generations of cultivation, they produced the extraordinarily rich fruit that we know today, that we smash and put on our toast, that we combine with lime and chili and make into guacamole, that we put into wonderful salads that my son actually hates, but never mind. It's not only rich in taste, remarkable in taste, but rich in nutrients. It's a perfect example of human beings doing what human beings were made to do. Now, our need for food tells us that we are both dependent on, on the grace of God and called by him to a special role and responsibility in his creation as its gardeners. We are reminded by eating that we are part of the earth and we must treat it as, with respect, as a gift. So, when you eat, when you eat, pause to give thanks to the one who gave it and who gave us the task of cultivating the earth. You may have paid for your food or grown it, but it is still a blessing from God. You are still dependent on its existence to even live. Remember then 
daily that you are dependent on God and the creation and that you are a created being made for a wonderful purpose. But one part of the story that we didn't actually have read in our reading today is the creation of the first woman. Because, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Human beings cannot carry out their task or enjoy the earth as individuals. There needs to be more of them. So Eve is created from Adam's own body as a sign that she is made of the same stuff as he is. From the same material, she belong, they belong together in the, sharing the same dusty nature. And that the human race will be genetically connected with one another. She's famously called, and notoriously people might say, Adam's helper. Not because she's like his secretary or personal assistant or auxiliary. Because elsewhere, God is called a helper as well. The same word is used of God. But because she shares in the work given to Adam. Her appearance creates the possibility of a new generation of human beings. Because as a pair, they become fruitful and multiply like the other creatures. So we learn that human beings are not unrelated units, but made to be part of an interdependent web of the sexes and the generations, mutually supporting and helping one another, and enjoying together the abundance of the earth that God has given us. But there's an extra element of this story too, and it also involves food. Amongst the trees, you may have noticed, are two very special trees. Tree, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And we aren't told a lot about them. We know here that we're dealing with something extraordinary, something that is very particular to the story. This is not just an avocado tree and an apple tree. These trees have particular fruit and a particular meaning to them. As Adam and Eve eat from the tree of life, so they share in God's life and fellowship with him. But there's that other tree too, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from this tree, says God. To eat of it spells death. And why did God put this tree in the garden, we might well ask. It's a good question and one pondering at length. It's enough to say today. We should notice the contrast between Adam's freedom to eat of any tree with this one small restriction. Adam's freedom is maximal. His restriction is minimal. His freedom is extraordinary, isn't it? He may eat of any tree, but just not this one. Yes, we think God is being stingy, but also... This tree is a warning to human beings that there is a domain that belongs to God alone. They should remember their nature as dependent creatures and not trespass, for it is not good for them. It, they will come to harm should they overstep this boundary. And again, I don't think God is being stingy or mean here. He is protecting us from what will destroy us. He is protecting us with his warning yet also giving us maximal freedom. It's not a mean test or a trick. It's like the warning signs outside a power station, which tell us, look, very high voltage. Don't go in there, because if you go in there, it, would, it will prove lethal. Do not eat of this tree. Do not cross this boundary. And yet, the tragedy of, our human, of us human beings is our inability 
to be satisfied with the generosity of the good God in his creation and our place in it. We hear of one little restriction and we're peeved. We're insulted by it. Being second only to God is not good enough. Eve is persuaded by the the snake who manipulates God's words, which she didn't hear firsthand, and makes her wonder whether both God and Adam have been lying to her. Why not eat of it, says the snake. You'll become like God if you do. You'll gain a wisdom that belongs only to him. His copyright on ultimate knowledge will be broken and you'll be truly liberated from his tyranny. It's a really appealing offer, symbolised by taking the taking of the fruit from the wrong tree. Now again, it's easy for us to get all cartoonish about this. I mean, what's wrong with eating a piece of fruit, we might say? Now notice that apples aren't mentioned, by the way. It might have been an avocado, for all we know. It's just a fruit. But it is what the fruit symbolises that we need to see. The place that belongs only to God. But why was it there? I mean, why not just treat us like toddlers and put a safety lock, you know, put on the, we put the poisons in the locked cupboard out of reach, for example. Why not do that? Well, the tree is there in the garden because God has a special relationship with human beings. His presence is with them in the garden in a way that's not true for any of the other creatures. The forbidden tree is a sign of his gracious presence with us, but also a reminder to us that we are his creatures. It's a, in a way, it describes the special relationship we have with him, that we are like him, made for relationship with him, but one of the keys to relationship with him is that we are not him, and we mustn't think that we are like him. In fact, it destroys us when we do. We're very good humans and very bad gods. It's a bit like the Holy of Holies in the temple, which was that one special place which symbolised God's presence with his people, but which was forbidden. It was not a place that you could go except the high priest once a year. This was the place where God was present and available, but not a place that you could go to on your own terms. To eat of this tree, then, speaks of broken fellowship with God. It says a defiant no to God as God. It upsets the harmony, the delicate harmony between God and us, between each other and between the creation. It seems innocent enough, doesn't it, to human beings simply munching on a piece of fruit and yet it is precisely not innocent. And the human beings know it. This little story not only marks the entry into the world of sin and suffering, it is the universal story. It is a pattern we repeat, all of us, in our own ways. Our hunger is not simply for what God has given us, but for more. We want what God is having, too. We'll have what he's having. We're not happy with dependence on him. We want independence. We're not happy with being his servants, given an extraordinary freedom in exercising his mission. We want to run our own lives, our own way. We hate recognising the creatureliness of our own bodies. We want to be eternal like him. But we are not. The creation is now scarred with the effects of human disobedience, and we are too. It's not surprising that one of the severest impacts on human experience is that the earth itself is cursed especially with regards to food. 
from toil, the sweat of your brow, God says to Adam, you will now bring forth food. Human beings will need not just to work, but experience painful toil and disappointment. The plants of the field will now grow up alongside thorns and thistles that thwart them. And the evidence of this is all around us to this day. So true is this story. In many ways, we have a complicated food, a vexed sorry, relationship with food, a vexed relationship with food and with food production. We're experiencing, even with all our know-how and technology, a global food crisis this very day with surging food prices and with severe famines affecting parts of the world. According to UNICEF, globally, 1.9 billion adults are overweight or obese, while 462 million adults are underweight, both classified as forms of malnutrition sort of showing what a problematic relationship we have as civilizations with our food. 149.2 million children under the age of five are considered stunted because of a lack of good food. In our frustration at the earth, we have not always tended it and cared for it, but we've exploited it and demeaned it. Fishing the seas empty, depleting water resources for expensive fruits, like avocados, demanding products, whatever the season, degrading the soil and polluting the rivers. Just to take one example, this is one of the most water-intense fruits requiring 70, 70 litres of water went into the making of that one piece of fruit. And of course it needs to grow in tropical climates far away from the cities where we want to eat them. Just as our, as our food is a sign of God's grace in everything, so this food problem points us to a deeper problem that we have in our relationship with God, with our world, and with one another. The world is not under our control. There is no reason why we cannot feed the world. We have the technology to produce food in abundance, in superabundance, and yet we do not feed the world. There is no reason for such high levels of obesity, and yet we cannot control ourselves when it comes to food. Our appetites, they control us. There is, however, good news. For though we are powerless to restore all things, to restore all these things, God's grace is double. His generosity is meted out in a double helping. We still know the blessing of living in his fruitful earth, although there are cracks in it. But we also know that in Jesus Christ, God is working to restore and renew us, and with us, the entire creation. And it's not an accident that Jesus himself identifies with food, calling himself the bread of life. The rest of this series will unfold this story. So do come back week after week to hear how the good news, how food is in fact, the story of food is in fact a good news story. But for now, the story of Genesis chapter 2 reminds us of how much we have to be thankful for when we eat. We have life, you and I, and survival because of God's grace to us. We are highly dependent creatures. We are made from the ground to work the ground and to enjoy what the earth produces. And we enjoy this with one another. We are made for that too. We are made to eat not alone, but with one another. Which is why we Christians traditionally pause before we eat to give thanks as Jesus did. It's a sign of the materialism of our culture and of the secularization of our culture, that this cultural habit has been lost even amongst Christians. 
And yet we ought to pause. We ought to pause to become conscious as we begin to eat of who God is and who we are. We pause and give thanks because we are dependent, finite, mortal creatures with the immense privilege of serving the Creator and the immense delight of enjoying His creation. My dad used to say a particular grace, and once we got bigger, he used to sing. We used to kind of sing grace when we were little, and I'm not going to do that now. But it's a good habit if you've got small children to start with a sung grace that they will never forget as they start to eat. My father's grace, which I've never forgotten, was this. For these and all your mercies, Lord, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The great thing about this grace, of course, is it's short. It's not a lengthy exposition of all the wide range of God's blessings to us so we can get in and eat. But it's also unforgettable and I think doubly profound. For these and all your mercies, Lord, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Because we are pointing to the food on the table that we're about to put to our lips and saying these are mercies. These are great mercies to us, weak and fragile as we are. Sinful and broken as we are. But it is a mercy, the food that we eat, a mercy that points to the greater mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. We need food to live. We have it from the hand of a merciful and generous God. We need Jesus Christ to live with God forever and enjoy him. And in his name we say, Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.